Hello, everybody, and welcome to the actual 161st episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows how to count where it counts. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Glad to be here on episode 159. Uh, how are you doing tonight? Uh, I'd be doing better if I hadn't absolutely destroyed my little toe. What did you I was, do? I was, we, ha- we have, before I was into magic finance heavily, I was into toy fan- finance much more heavily as we were leading up to launching our shelf life project. And so I happen to have one whole room of our house that's full of toy inventory that we drag out and sell at a couple shows a year. And my partner has been putting pressure on me that she would like to see some of that get cleared out because eventually maybe we would like to have our a room for our daughter. So who currently sleeps with us because she's two. Um, so I was going through that process today and within the first five minutes, uh, I managed to stub my toe harder than I ever have in my entire life and basically split like half an inch above and below the nail on my little toe and right through the nail. It just starts gushing blood everywhere. Why do you so feel the a- need to share this story on a finance podcast? Because <laughs> you asked me how I was doing. Are you? Yeah. Are you just? Was it small talk? You yeah, don't actually absolutely. Care? I don't want to hear about oh, your you gross split open toes. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it didn't. It didn't spill on any of my cards. So that's good. Uh, didn't ruin any of the toys either. Um, but it did take me about an hour uh, to fix it up. Spray bandage is a ma- is a magical magical device. Um, also helps that my uh, stepmother is a podiatrist, so um, she was able to give me some good advice on as to whether or not I had a compound fracture in my tiny toe. I think it's going to be all right. Well, I was a little worried there at the end of your story that you might lose it, but I'm glad we got it straightened out. If it if it falls off, no, I'll let you guys know. Just okay. stay tuned. Okay. Uh, I guess. On my end, things are going fine. I am uh, trying to pick up for a move because we bought a house this week. Uh, inspection, inspection cleared last night, so I'm pretty sure. Lovely. Pretty sure we're doing it. Um, awesome. So, you know, even if it falls through, I still have to start packing now. Uh, but I had, I don't know if people caught it, but I posted a photo on Twitter of my kind of magic corner. And I'm not the most up to date with like keeping on track of stuff all the time so i just have like towers of magic cards that are loosely arranged uh and i was before the cast and and now i'm kind of breaking down the one spec pile that i haven't gotten a chance to sort yet and i'm just sort of like ooh, i forgot i had this like ooh, i forgot i had this oh i didn't realize i bought these uh some of the things that I have found, I have been very happy about. I'm like, because I didn't know I had them and they're worth a bunch of money. Uh, I will share with you the miss that I found, which was the uh, like seven Cavernous Souls I bought before they announced Ultimate Masters. <laughs> so it was like $650 worth of caverns. And I think they halved in price. So that was a bummer. Uh, Fortunately, they are probably gonna get back there not too long from now yeah they're catching up they're they're pretty close to what i paid but they're still below if if 
if there if we're right and there is a tribal theme or a few different tribal themes say zombies elves and goblins or something in modern horizons we could very easily see a new tribal deck come to the forefront in modern and cavern take off again yeah yeah i agree i agree so it could be better but i don't know it's just it's just funny because honestly some of these cards are uh let's just say we were at least one spreadsheet back <laughs> when i bought some of these cards uh so i really forgot that i had some of them i i now have three main holding pens for specs i have the definitely long term or failed they've never been combined <laughs> it's all, all one buddy all one <laughs> so that's pretty much always all just one anyway so i've now got them all in the same place and the currently for sale that's pretty obvious and the tipping point cards that are like i flag them because i'm not quite ready to enter the market yet i don't not price isn't exactly where i want it to be so they're sitting in the box that's closest to the desk kind of like ready to ready for action should the moment arise yeah which i think is generally good and i think that that that's a semi close to what i've got going on and uh well maybe this is this is our segment for it somebody else had a good idea for us too it's it's annoying to try and figure out what's gonna work getting organized yeah and staying organized like you i had all this set up and done like two years ago it was all in great shape and then you know tape up with it you know i get i get a bunch of orders in on a week where i'm doing a bunch of other stuff i don't file them a pile starts up and it's just you know it gets out of control uh but eh. Whatever. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> our show is sponsored, or is produced, sorry, by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering, single, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Do it. Do it. I dare you to do it. Um, well, James, <laughs> on our agenda this week, since you asked, is segment one, our top movers. Uh, that's quite a list this week. We're going to have to blow through that. I don't have enough time for this. Segment two is our cards to watch. James and I outline some of the cards we've got our eyes on. Segment three, the metagame week in review. We have the Star City Team Open from Cincinnati this past weekend. And also uh, GP Kyoto was standard. I don't know how much is over there, but we're aware of it. Segment four, our topic of the week. It's a little bit up in the air right now. Maybe we will discuss. Uh, yeah, again, Getting organized is a good one. That was always the plan, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, we, that's why we planned it ahead of time. Uh, we had a good idea in Discord. Maybe we'll touch on about the cash flow. So we'll see. Um, but let's start off. Segment one, our top movers. First card of the week, Polluted Delta out of Onslaught. Uh, all of the original enemy fetch lands have been appreciating. Actually, all the fetch lands have been appreciating. Uh, we're getting quite a ways away now from the last printing. A little more pressure on them just based on age. Modern Horizons on the... Uh, <coughs> horizon and knowing that the fetch lands aren't going to be there has let some people who might have been holding off say okay now is the time to pull the trigger and i'm guessing that's more on the speculator side than the people who need the card side um i don't know how many people were thinking they needed a place that a polluted delta but didn't know if they should buy them because of horizons and then that got announced and went, okay now i gotta go buy my polluted deltas I don't know how much of that happened, but i do think there are people out there who are going mm, polluted delta seem like that might be a good spec 
And, and then they found out that they won't be in Horizons and went, okay, now I can do it. Now I can go. And then they go buy a couple copies, planning on reselling this more likely. Anyways, those copies 40 to 50, so only about a 30% gain right now. But I think you're going to see this sort of 5 to 20%, 30% week over week uh, for a while. If a land is a staple for a long time, and Polluted Delta, I mean, Onslaught was, Onslaught is older than most Magic players have been playing the game at this point. Um, original printings of popular lands are going to be hard to go wrong with in the very long term. Their year yearly gains are going to fluctuate based on their time and presence in standard and to what degree they're being used in modern EDH. But if you get a bunch of them in the 5 to $10 range just after they rotate, or even less in some cases, inevitably five, six, seven years out, even if you screw up and don't even pay attention, you're probably going to do okay. And it's, it's hard to do have a better textbook example of that than original Fetchlands. Uh, I mean, yep. original, I guess, but other than that. Other than that. Uh, following that, Oath of the Gatewatch, Kozilek the Great Distortion, about 10 to 13, so about a 30% bump. Um, I guess this was featured on Command Zone, is that correct? Yeah. They had an episode recently where a Kozilek deck I think took the match and they made a big deal out of it. Then they started doing a new segment, which is a whole different piece they put out where they were doing the breakdown of the deck and these deck breakdowns, the ones that are popular or that, you know, you know, catch the zeitgeist are going to move some cardboard because they have such a huge user base that, you know, if you focus on something like Kozilek for a week or two, then people are going to go out and buy that card. Um, and we've seen it with both the foils and the non-foils moving. And this is for a card that was, you know, essentially abandoned in standard, never really did anything. It was too expensive um, and has never gotten anywhere in modern. So and an EDH was kind of a, you know, f- f- in the fringes lurking around in, in big mana decks, but not a really big deal. But this was, you know, it being the commander of the deck and the whole deck being built around um, supporting Kozilek. And so I think... I. I don't see this as on a reprint docket for 2019, and as such, this could easily finish the year at 20 or above. Which, uh, which I'm definitely a fan of. I found a healthy pile of these that I bought when they were like 350, that we all thought was mm-hmm. going to do something in standard uh, or and pick up with EDH demand, and it never really got there on either side of that. So they sort of languished. Yeah, but now, hey, now it's different. Yeah, I've got a pile of ten to fifteen dollar foils um, that I picked up uh, incorrectly in terms of how early it was. Um, I don't know what my thinking was at the time, but it was way early. Um, and I think I've been holding them for at least eighteen months. So the if I get out in the next three to six, returns are still going to be real strong. But when you annualize them, they'll probably be less impressive. Mm, yeah, I'm in the same boat. All right, so moving right along, we got Toxic Deluge from EMA going from 22 to 30, 36% gain. I could see this card getting to 40 or 50 before it sees a reprint unless uh, it shows up in Modern Horizons, but I can't see that happening. A format that already has Death Shadow near Tier 1 or in Tier 1, does it really want Toxic Deluge to let you like turn your Death Shadow as big as you want it to be? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fine. I mean, Toxic Deluge with Death Shadow lets you wipe wipe your opponent's board and power up your Death Shadow. I mean, that is pretty potent, I have to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I don't see 
Deluge is a priority for modern, but then I don't yet have enough information to fully understand what they're going for with Horizons. So let's just say that there is some, I would give it like 20% or less reprint risk from Horizons. And other than that, this is going to get to 40 before it's used reprint. Yeah, I think that's fair. So likewise, Fate Stitcher from Shards of Alara, uh, non-foils moving from two to three, not a big deal, hard to make money on. Um, This is probably still echoes of the foils taking off the week before when LSV posted his video playing Jeskai Ascendancy combo with four Fate Stitchers. Um, You need to see this deck top eight somewhere for these to really, like for the demand, the the price plateau to really Mm -hmm. take hold. Yep, Uh, pretty much. Planar Bridge out of Aether Revolt, non-foil, 629. Um, partly on the back of like Paradox Engine, maybe. Like those types of artifacts are gathering more attention. People saw what went happened, what happened with... Um, uh, I just said the damn card, too. People saw what happened with Paradox Engine probably be going back into the Kaladesh block to look for other great artifacts to kind of sneak in on before they get popular. That's my take on this. Do you have a different one? This was also featured on Command Zone a few different oh, times. You could have just stopped me and told card. me that instead of letting me ramble. <laughs> well, the it's ha- half of some six of the other, right? Like the a lot of the important artif- artifacts from Kaladesh block have been featured on Command Zone, but they're being featured because they're popular in the format. Um, and lots of people are already playing them. Things like Panharmonicon and Paradox Engine, um, and and now Planar Bridge are uh, you know people realizing that in a big mana deck, you know something that searches up a permanent and puts it into play is going to do a lot of work. Paradox Engine untapping every turn, the, every time you cast a spell is going to do a lot of work. Um, Panharmonicon triggering every time something comes to the battlefields, and so on and so forth. Like artifact blocks are always rich with specs, and this is the harvesting season for Kaladesh. So um, I've got my eye on... I've had my eye on Planar Bridges for a while. I picked up some foils, non-foils, and masterpieces, and we'll talk about that in a little bit later. Okay. Uh, Contagion Engine, Scars of Mirrodin copies, foils, about 20 to 30. Uh, This is uh, the one that double proliferates. So this is already up there because of Atraxa, of course, being who she is and what she does. And with War of the Spark, right around the corner, spoilers are this weekend, I believe. Um, the double proliferate uh, ahead of a set full of Planeswalkers is appealing. Yeah, we were talking about this as soon as we knew that War was about Planeswalkers. Um, this was on our discussion list of cards that were going to matter. And the double proliferate certainly makes it into the deck. Um, I've run it in a, a Tracks of Super Friends for sure. And I picked up foils consequently in the like ten to fifteen dollar range in Europe. So the exit on those is probably going to be pretty sweet when all is said and done. I mean, we haven't really hit peak hype yet. We're getting War of the Spark Planeswalkers. Sixteen of them, sixteen cards from the set are being revealed on the last day of the Mythic Invitational this Sunday. Um, and I have a feeling next week is going to be very busy or yeah. war specs. Yeah, and I think I, I said something to that effect in my article this week too. And so far it's mostly just been the people with their ear to the ground that have been active. But once it really becomes public knowledge and the people that are a little less inclined to pay such close attention get wind of what's going on, uh, they might be coming out of the woodwork. I gotta say, the cards that I've seen I hope are revealed on Sunday so we can finally talk about them. <laughs> Keeping my mouth shut. Painful. 
I, uh, <laughs> as your co-host, I believe you. <laughs> uh, Death Shadow Foils out of Modern Masters 3, 30 to 50. Uh, yeah, we just talked about this pretty recently. One, did one of us pick it or did we just say it seemed like a good pick? It was so one or two, the other. Two, two or three weeks ago, you called non-foils. And twice in the last year, I called foils. Okay. Um, I was in as early as, I think I bought my first set of Death Shadow foils like four months after MM17, so like during peak supply. And I've been buying here and there ever since. And most recently, called it out as, the foils out as a like missed pick one day that probably should have made our list. Foil Death Shadows are essentially sold out at this point under $50 from MM17. So if you were in on them at like, 12 14 15 18 you're in great shape and i still think the non-foils are in position to get from 20 to 30 or even 40 before a reprint okay some action there yeah um a light enlightened tutor from ema and vampiric tutor both moving enlightened tutor foils going from 34 to 56 at 64 percent gains vampiric tutor foils going from 124 to over 200 dollars for a similar mid-60s gain um ema foil rares and uh mythics that are relevant in modern and or edh have shown very good returns um, mm-hmm. since their release uh even though that set was put out twice that year there was the primary wave in the early summer and then we saw some more of it towards the end of the year um so i think it's uh relevant to keep that in mind when we're trying to evaluate modern horizons which as kind of a open-ended print run so far as we know, um, is probably we're going to see my guess is still uh, from what I'm hearing from vendors in terms of their discussions with their distributors, the set is going to feel very scarce at first. And then there's going to be another big wave probably four to six weeks later or eight weeks later. And then I would guess another few months after that, you'll see another bunch of it crop up probably towards the holidays um, because I have a feeling the set is going to be is chock-a-block full of great cards and is going to be very popular. So, peak su- finding peak supply. This is a whole different topic, but there's going to be at least two or three different times to target cards from Modern Horizons, and they are all likely to be uh, fruitful. Yeah, I am inclined to agree with that, and I, I feel like they said they said something about the availability of Horizons. I, they, well, they said they did EMA twice, which they don't want to do. They made a mistake with, but they were. What is it? No, they said Horizons is available in large stores, right? Isn't it at Walmart and Target? I think there's blister packs. I feel like. I haven't heard. I, I don't have the information. I so that's news to me. I feel like they said that, but I could be wrong. But it's been a while now. Hmm. Even if it, Even if that's true, that hasn't had much of an effect on M25, IMA... Ultimate Masters had blister packs too, right? Uh, yeah, there was Ultimate Masters three packs. Yeah, we talked because we talked about the three packs when it came out in terms of why bother since you don't get the box mm-hmm. topper. Like you're basically like paying too much for those packs. The um, here's the thing: I I I believe that the majority of the market that buys from those places casually, a lot greater percentage of those people than the people that go to an LGS are likely to churn that product back in through buy lists. I think if you're doing your magic shopping at Walmart or Target, you are less likely to be buy listing. And if you're not buy listing, your the cards that you just bought are irrelevant because they do not circulate back into the market. Yeah, I mean the kid who's getting impacts of Horizons from 
his, you know, he goes to Target with his mom and she buys him a blister pack of Horizons. And he's, you know, 11, they may never see the light of day again. That's entirely possible. So they, they essentially don't exist. You, you figure some percentage of them filter back out, right? But we don't know. I don't really have a way to know what that is, I guess. Mm. Mm-hmm. So moving right along, Soul Ring from Revised, near uh, near Mint, obviously non-foil copies, uh, going from 14 to 24. There are only five copies for sale between 20 and $30. Oh, that reminds me, right now. I need to go dig out my recycling. I <laughs> So... I'm cleaning up and I'm like, pick up a pile of card, random cards off my thing. And I'm like, there are several SP strip mines along with a bunch of other stuff. So I just like stick them together and drop them in the recycling. Cause I'm like, oh, I don't care because strip mines have always been like 250 and these weren't near mint and I'm not going to bother with them. And then I like later on that day, real like some look something else up and saw strip mines were like $20 or more for mint copies. I'm like, I texted my wife. I'm like, don't take the recycling out today. <laughs> and I have to, I still have to go look for that. I forgot about that. So soul ring, obviously the most important card in commander. Um, there was plenty of inventory of these for a while, um, but it has been draining. And I suspect that somebody realized that it was low enough that they could take a swipe. Cause it looked like a big chunk disappeared pretty quickly. Um, there's a lot of revised published. But comparative to today's print runs, not so much. And there are tons of these sitting in people's binders and collections. The question is, how many of them are going to circulate? Um, and to what degree will that take place putting downward pressure on this new plateau? Like, are we going to be able to see Revise Soul Ring hit $30, 40 $50, In the next year's year? pushing it. But I don't think that that's an unreasonable point eventually. Uh... I mean, there's a lot of revised. Well, I don't know. I mean, they keep printing Soul Ring every year. So there's enough supply to keep up with the demand. I guess the question is, are people willing to pay for the revised copies? That seems odd because they're ugly, but eh, I've been wrong about this stuff plenty of times before. Card Kingdom's paying 10. Cool Stuff's paying even less. Um, Abu, through translation, is somewhere in the in the same ballpark. So, I mean... The vendors are not yet on the same page in terms of where this is headed. Let's see, check back in on this in a couple of weeks and see what, what the buy, how the buy list uh, side of things responds. A couple of weeks, you think it'll be that fast? Yeah, I mean, some of these buy lists are just based on people making purchases like four or eight copies disappear, the site, the site price changes. Well, I guess I don't mean the site reacting that quickly. I mean, players making those decisions enough market demand to move the prices that fast. Well, it just depends on whether the buyers at the vendors decide to move the price up because they don't no longer have any in stock if they were part of the targeting. Um, and that's always worth checking too, right? Like was it TCG that got bought out or did TCG just drain naturally over time as is the case with many old foils? Um, or, you know, did they, hit every vendor in North America that anybody can think to name off the top of their head. Um, you know, Soul Ring gets reprinted constantly, usually drops down to a couple bucks and then gets back up to five or six. And that will continue to happen. But people want to have unique or semi-unique versions of 
the most popular cards. And if you can't afford a masterpiece soul ring, maybe you'll settle for a revised soul ring just because it has a look, an old look to it. It is wild to think that a revised soul ring is the unique copy at the table, but I suppose that is true for many people. Could easily be true. Commander products only started in 2013, right? So that's like 15 years after you had ac- easy access to revised soul ring. Right. Um, Anger of the Gods foils out of Theros, 11 to 20. So a, nice, a healthy bump there. Um, this was printed in IMA. Uh, so that would have suppressed the pack foils quite a bit. But, you know, with movement like this, it looks like IMA might be starting to move too, which was the same year as EMA, if memory serves me, or within several months of it. So no, one year later, IMA was one year later. There were two, like within a couple months of each other. I think. EMA is summer 2016 and then like November, December 2016. And then IMA is end of 2017 that we have M25 last spring 2018. And then Ultimate Masters end of Maybe it was IMA and Masters 25 I'm thinking of. Yeah, they were like that, four okay, months That's apart. what I'm thinking of. That's what I'm thinking of. Uh, but in any case, Foil Anger of the Gods are now moving because enough IMA inventory has been chewed through that there's some more room for them and because modern again as we talked about last week modern horizons has drawn that line in the sand that says these are you're not you're getting you might be getting this stuff you're getting a bunch of new stuff but you're definitely not getting any of this stuff you already need so if you were holding off don't because you can't get it anywhere else you know what it is uh anger of the gods is uh for our phoenix decks because it exiles them yep exiles that's what it is Mm-hmm. so also land grant we talked about these foils uh, a few episodes back uh, innovative tech in legacy um, uh, alongside really low count I think death shadow decks if I'm not mistaken um, foils going from 12 to 22 80% plus gains um, legacy not really driving the market too often these days but uh, because land grant was from Arcadian masks. Um, those foils are pretty old themselves. Um, not hard to drain the market. No, I don't think there were any on the market to begin with. I mean, Mercadian masks foils, unless you're buying, you know, in unimportant commons are going to be pretty scarce just regardless. Yeah. I, I scooped up like a handful, but the day I was hunting was when like it first came to the forefront as a thing that was happening. And, you know, I'm sure that between all the people that were hunting, maybe 20 copies got bought because that's all there was. Mm. I believe it. Um, following land grant as Kalitus, not Kalitus, 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 Kalitas, trader of Geeth from Oath of the Gatewatch, non foils 9 to 17 for almost a double up. Uh, that pressure has been coming from EDH mostly for a while. Uh, modern too. Occasional sideboard card and John every now and then makes it in the main deck. I think. Um, and I see you've got a note here that you think uh, Arclight Phoenix might have something to do with this recent behavior. Uh, because if a non-token creature an opponent controls would die, you instead exile it. So when yeah. Phoenixes hit the graveyard, Kalidus gets rid of them. Um, however, there aren't that many decks that can run it effectively. So this is the combination of. A, a bit of a spike in, in modern demand um, and just the fact that it's always been a good card in EDH. Um, and we're a few years out from the printing and it wasn't a fall set. It was a winter set. So winter set mythics um, like summer set mythics tend to get there 
if they are good in at least one format. Yes. Yep. What's next for us? Swan Song foils at a Theros going from 10 to 19. This is on the back of relatively consistent EDH and modern play. Um, Hedron Archive from BFZ was one of my picks in episode 152. Uh, go to 5 to 12, I believe. It's at 10 this week, up from 5. So we got there. Um, Vesuva at a Time Spiral foils going from 36 to 95. There are a few different decks in modern that make good use of this, and it's useful in EDH. Um, and again, we... There is no uh, reprint forthcoming. Likewise, from Time Spiral, Nether Trader foils going from a 13 to 46. We talked about the non-foils last week, and we're seeing the other half cool. of the spike here. Um, and I, I chatted about that with my one of my Grand Prix winning buddies who still plays a ton of Magic, and he also shared the sentiment that he probably figured it was people specking on some sort of modern reanimation concept in Modern Horizons. Um, and it just being a useful creature to possibly have access to if you are playing Cabal Therapist and cards in that realm. Sure. Speaking of realms, the Dark Ones have risen this week. Foils out of Magic 2014, 20 to supposedly. Thank you. Thank you. That was our best transition of the season. I thought that was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the 20 to 80 on the Rise of the Dark Realms, which is a pretty big jump there. Um uh, an absurd card in the format, very popular. I, you know, without even pulling up the EDH rec page, I'm putting this in the top seven. Tutors are very popular, so it might be down in the top 15. But Rise of the Dark Realms is up there. If you've never had this card cast against you, it is unpleasant. Reanimates every creature in every graveyard and puts them in the play in front of you. $80 is definitely uh, eager, uh, but. They've been 20 for a while. I've looked at this card several times and never been able to make the purchase. So I think 40, 35 to 40 is probably where these land. Um, With more room to grow, probably not in the next several months, though. It actually doesn't even make the top 30 in EDH, but don't let that fool you. It's still almost 10,000 decks reported, and that means there's tens of thousands of people that are playing it. And as I said... Winter set mythics and summer set mythics. This is an M14 mythic from, you know, five years ago that doesn't have a reprint. So here you go. That few people play it. Apparently that not that many people have ever had this cast against well, them. Well, that few people reported it through Goldfish and the other site that EDH Rec pulls in data from. Well, I just mean like in relative popularity, it is lower sure. than I would expect it to be. And it, it should be higher than that, I guess. It, but. If your deck isn't like, if you don't have all the, the correct mana rocks you're supposed to be running by default, um, then nine casting cost spells can still be intimidating for players that haven't put in the kind of like 10 card suite that guarantees you're going to get there. Yeah, see, that's funny you say that because I think a bad player is more likely to play those cards because they lack the the under, uh, the intuition of how, just how hard those things are to cast. Because I, I would guess a new player to modern or a new player to magic who sits down and build an EDH deck is going to have a deck full of like, they're going to have like 12, 10 casting cost cards because they're awesome and they're big and you play a lot of lands, right? Without realizing that just means you never cast anything. Yeah, I mean, splitting hairs to what degree it's popular because it's already showing the movement, right? And since there's no obvious reprint outlet, I mean, the closest would probably be we're going to get a core set at the end of summer could show up there but one of hundreds of cards that could show up there as a reprint usually only five or ten relevant reprints so um, no reason to believe this will be high on the the priority list 
Um, also interesting this week, two seventh edition foils that jumped Sarah Angel and Giant Growth. Sarah Angel going from 20 to 90, if you believe that, for 300% plus. Giant Growth, 500% plus, going from like buck fifty to 9. This is nothing more than the continuing targeting of seventh foils by both collectors and hoarders and people that are speculating on them long term. I mean, I, I still am following this guy on Twitter every week that is constant. All all of his MTG finance tweets are the same. It's him reporting on the new MTG mail he got that has either foil seventh equilibrium or foil seventh uh, final fortune. And he's got dozens of them. That dude owns. Um, and, and, and that's just like one dude. <laughs> he's awesome. So, yeah, he. I mean, he's not going to be able to exit quickly, but he'll probably get there, like, give it enough time. Um, single-minded focus. Uh, inexorable Tide from uh, Scars of Mirrodin. Foils going from 5 to 22. That's on War Hype because it proliferates at the end of every turn. I've actually cut this card from Attracts of Super Friends because I didn't feel like it was impactful enough, but plenty of people will still run it, and in the counters slash Planeswalkers or pure counters builds of Atraxa, it is significantly better where you're trying to manipulate more than just Planeswalker counters. Um, Diligent Farmhand out of Odyssey. Those foils jumped from $1 to 5 on the back of Popper. There is a Muscle Burst deck where this is basically Muscle Burst 5 through 8, and that's why Diligent hand, Farmhand moved. That's a great card name. Muscle Burst. Uh, <laughs> foil Impromptu Raids? Really? I just I deleted uh, it. I have no idea what's going on with this card. Do, do you know? No, but I... Then this that. has been well. I just this has been on my like list of cards to try and build around in modern for okay, ages, ages. Uh, and Jr. Time Elemental on Twitter uh, and I have chatted about it. I think on a couple of occasions trying to figure out how to make it work, and just never found the room for it or uh, or got there. And I got all excited. I'm like, did somebody finally figure it out? But I I I feel like I heard the name out loud again like several months ago. So maybe one streamer played it and somebody decided to pick up a couple foils just in case. Uh, it, it could easily be a Saffron thing that I missed um, or something similar. That's probably... Um, this is a card that basically lets you flip cards off the top of your deck. If they're creatures, they go into play and they get haste and then you have to exile them or they go to graveyard. Yeah, it's sort of like through the breaching, except you threw the breach off the top of your library instead of out of your hand, um, which sounds sure. awesome, but it's three to play and four to activate i think or I, those are the the two numbers are four and three so it costs seven total so it's pretty pricey um and then you have to do all the work of studying up the top card of your library so like it has some possible possibilities for what it can get away with but that's just unfortunately a little too clunky i think all right cleaning up the list we usually have the oddballs at the top here three and golem from urza's destiny foils from two to twelve that's just old foils under pressure um, no one's playing that card anywhere uh, of note. Tormod's Crypt, on the other hand, is a modern sideboard staple that's been increasingly useful in certain decks that want to be able to get Graveyard Hate down for zero casting cost. Um, or uh, we looked at red builds at one point a couple weeks back where they were getting prowess triggers off of it um, and can be useful in Phoenix Mirrors, I suppose, um, depending on what the configuration is. Uh, so the M15 foil is going from 2 to 15. Hmm. Nice little gain if people have been sitting on any of those. Yeah, if you can sell it. All right, so moving right along to cards to watch this week. We've got a uh, bevy of good choices, it looks like. Um, I will dive in with my first. I, most of these I put on this list right after our last cast because I was so chock full of ideas last week. Apparently. Um, so 
Some of these have drained a little bit since I put them on here, but uh, still some meat on the bone for the pro traders. First thing that caught my eye was street wraith foils. Um, call this a mid to long play because there's still inventory out there, um, but it's a four of staple in multiple modern decks, and it's not one of the cards that people are talking about banning. So if Faithless Looting catches a ban in the next few months, um, this becomes one of the more uh, better ways to thin your deck or to increase consistency and is has long been useful in Death Shadows builds uh, and Death Shadow just won a GP. So to see the straight street weight foils go from, say, $5 to $12, I don't think would be uncharacteristic um, given its position. It was most recently printed in M25, but we haven't had any foils of it from uh, before that since Modern Masters. So once they drain, uh, there's not going to be any easy resupply. Um, because there's no standard boxes to pop to pull these out of, because the only standard set it ever appeared in was uh, Future Sight. Well, I will say, and those and those foils, Future Sight foils are serious, yeah, money. and impossible to find. They have the coolest border too. It's a bummer we won't get those back. Um, I will say that I think Street Wraith is. No one's talking about banning it today, but it is has been discussed. I think before. Um, it's not a. It seems to me like the type of card they kind of like to go after. Like it's basically a Gataxian probe, right? Gataxian probe was pay two life to cycle the card and draw a card, and you got to see your opponent's hand, which was usually irrelevant or not that impactful. Uh, you would have played the card without that text. Street Wraith is the same card. It's pay two life, cycle it. Um, it just makes those cards, those decks smaller, and also puts a creature in the graveyard, which is big news for some people. Um, so I don't think that it's impervious, but I agree that it doesn't have a target on its head today. Uh, and I think that foils at $5 uh, definitely have some room to grow, um, especially with if the format's going to speed up too, right? You assume Modern Horizons is going to increase the power level, speed decks up a little bit. This gets even better. So I think that's actually quite solid. Yeah, it's actually... it's. It might be an interesting case study for a point that I was. I had a little. My social media scuffle of the month was with a data analyst over at Quiet Month of the month. Uh, data analyst you over mean, at Quiet Speculation, uh, Choberry, I believe is his handle. I'm sorry. I just have to pause you. You're. You should measure your Twitter scuffles in like hours, not months. <laughs> I don't get into like protracted arguments all that often. It's like once a month. So. So anyway. This particular engagement was because I had posted a tweet uh, a few days back toward, I think at the start of the weekend, basically saying, what would happen if you bought, a, if you attempted to buy all the Death Shadows that were posted from the major US vendors? So you're not trying to buy a Death Shadow worldwide. You're not trying to buy every last copy you can find anywhere in the world. You're not contacting players to dig into their collections you're not even tracking down every small shop in north america you're just going after like 10 websites worth of stuff so ebay tcg player and the major vendors that are you know most of the vendors that are partnered with mtg price and if you were to say throw a few thousand dollars at cleaning up the rest of the death shadows what would be the price of debt those death shadows come i think i said either may 1st or june 1st and people came back with a variety of responses. But our, the gentleman from QS was saying, well, you're actually just talking about manipulation. And which was kind of what I was getting at was this premise that, you know, I didn't expect it to come from him per se, but I was expecting somebody to come up with the, 
you know, it's a it's an evil buyout basically paradigm um, because I think that this is this continues to be a completely misunderstood um, uh, area of understanding for most Magic players, even the ones that are apparently involved in MTG finance. Um, because while I can fully appreciate that the person that would would be attempting that, and by the way, it was completely not something I was proposing to do, because as anybody that listens to this cast knows, our MO is focusing on tipping point cards, cards where the trend has already been established by the players, and you are mopping up a, you know, a handful, double handful, triple handful of copies um, to ride that wave. So very, very infrequently have I ever bought more than, say, 10 copies of anything. And usually that means I'm buying a 50 cent card or something that's in plentiful supply, like, say, a Curse of Opulence or something by 100 copies of 50 cents. Um, but I've never tried to go after, say, a $20 card for a few thousand dollars worth. So it was really more about the thought experiment of what, you know, what happens when you do that. And what I was trying to get at was that while that person's intent might be to attempt to control the price in the market, they have so little control as to how that plays out, given that they didn't co- actually corner the market, because even if you bought everything that was currently posted from the vendors in question, you're still holding far, far less than 1% of the printings of that card. And so it was more about teasing out from people like, how many copies would come out of collections and binders? How fast can that happen? Um, how much inventory might vendors be holding back? How many copies might be imported from Brazil or, or Germany or Japan or elsewhere in Europe? Um, you know, what are all the dynamics in play there that interfere with an evildoer's attempt to control the market? Okay. Was that the end of the thought? That, that was the premise of the discussion, yeah. Sure, which is a, which is a fair question. You know, I can play. I'll take a moment and I'll play devil's advocate and say that I think that there you you could see some f- sort of short term manipulation. Uh, granted, ultimately, if people don't want to pay um, the price for the card for the thought, if they don't want to pay twenty dollars for thought seizes, you won't sell thought seizes for twenty dollars, no matter how many copies you buy. Um, but you know, if you went and bought every copy at $13, it's available in the market. And then people got excited and posted, uh, copies at 20 along with you posting some, and then people started to pay that cause that's what was there. Uh, yes, there's clearly demand for the card at that price, but you could still make the argument that you manipulated it cause it wasn't there. And then you did a thing and now it's there. So, but I didn't read through that whole thread and, not really eager to dig into the middle of it. And I also mostly agree that there isn't really, isn't really manipulation in magic because you can't buy enough copies to dramatically to, to actually own a significant portion of the market share. Well, I think part of what irks me is that I think there's some confusion between manipulation in a casual sense, like a person attempting to affect a situation versus manipulation in a financial sense. When we talk about, you know, the kinds of market manipulation that the SEC might look into, there is a list of like 12 or 14 different kinds of crimes um, or kinds of scams that could be run that could lead to a series of charges. And one of the things people like to say about MTG finance is that, oh, if you were regulated, that would be illegal. (laughs) Except they misunderstand completely why those things are illegal with stocks. Stocks are 
the are shares of ownership in publicly held corporations. And so if you are in a position to take advantage of information that was supposed to be available to everybody and you either falsify information to mislead people or take advantage of real information that other people don't have, you are in a position to manipulate markets. You could also manipulate markets by, for instance, um, developing uh viruses or software that gave you some kind of strategic advantage in the execution of your trading because you were trading faster than everybody else. You could actually corner a market, meaning that, you know, look at De Beers in the 1980s was the example I was using on Twitter was they controlled like 80% plus of the diamond market worldwide from production all the way through to retail. And these days it's down to like 30 or 40% because there's been some fragmenting in that marketplace. But at a certain point, they were a true monopoly. In Magic, there is no true monopoly other than Wizards of the Coast themselves, who are the only producers of their own IP. But all the rest of us are in a quasi-competitive state where players, speculators, backpack vendors, and mid- small vendors, mid-sized vendors, and the very and then the you know platforms like eBay and TCG Player, etc., all play overlapping roles in this market. And none of them, even the biggest of the biggest, are in a position to dominate the marketplace. Um, And there's plenty of evidence that the marketplace is healthy because we don't see much evidence of price fixing in the market. We see vendors competing on price all the time. I mean, just the other day, I bought um, $45 Judge Foil food chains, eight of them from Channel Fireball, and Card Kingdom was offering $84.50 on their buy list. I mean, that's not the situation you get when you're in an oligopoly and everybody's sitting in a boardroom discussing what price they're going to post at. Like that, that's not how the gas industry looks <laughs> when OPEC, OPEC was in full control. The so I think it's I think that the um, comparison of the kinds of crimes that go on in you know out and out scams, like true pump and dump, is basically. Telling a bunch of people that a stock's going to go up for such and such a reason, which is probably false or overstated, and then you're already holding a bunch of it, and then you're going to sell to the same people that you were telling the thing is good to. So that would be like if I picked a card that wasn't good, and I told everybody uh, in the uh, Discord server that this is going to be really great. Trust me, I know it's going to be amazing. And then I bought them and sold them to them, <laughs> which I've, I've never seen go on. In, in my time at MTG Finance. Like, I'm sure that people have attempted to pump up cards that they own. And there is definitely a tendency and a bias that we've all seen to talk about cards that are sitting on your desk because you keep seeing them and then checking on them. And then people, you know, will say, hey, this card could still do well. And I think it's best practice, therefore, to expose those biases. And is why I tell everybody all the time, if I'm talking about a card, assume I'm holding it. Because I probably am, um, or I intend to be, or may be one day. But I don't, the point I'm trying to make is that market manipulation, to the degree that you could actually affect the magic market beyond hollowing out the last set of copies currently available in specific spots, is very limited indeed. Because as you said, when those people, uh, those copies dry up, Buy lists will shift. Players will put cards in through the buy list. They will trade them to other people. Uh, Wizards could reprint the card. Um, And ultimately, if if you bought up 
you know, all the death shadows at 20 and you tried to repost them at 40, like you bought 2000 copies and then you literally posted on TCG player that you had 2000 copies and you tried to claim the price was 40, you're going to get undercut every day by somebody else. And you're going to be fighting that battle in the race to the bottom. And ultimately the market will find equilibrium. The players will end up paying the amount for the card that they think it is worth at the time. And if that, if, if you could buy up 3000 copies of death shadow at 20 and on that Monday, somebody else offered to pay you 40 and took all of them happily off your hands, the argument can be made. You haven't manipulated anything. You identified an inefficiency in the marketplace and somebody else agreed to the extent that they took them off your hands. And I'm, I'm just not sure what finger you are left pointing in that case. Well, this is all very good, all very insightful. Uh, I'm not going to argue with you on any of it because, uh, frankly, I'm not sure. I'm on your side on all of this as we've discussed in the past. Uh, so I will let I will let whoever is listening take up their beef with you on Twitter for your <laughs> monthly Twitter scuffle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, weekly um, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> hourly like what? Well, right. okay it's all but, right well second quarter of the day time for the next one uh anyway street street wraith it's gonna go to 12 yes bucks. sure street wraith street wraith uh my first card this week i was digging into somebody mentioned some land on twitter and i went hmm and started poking around so my article on monday was a bunch of different lands that i thought were worth checking out and i got a couple more today um, and I think there's probably a pretty deep well here, but it's hard to dig into a lot of the data because so much of the way that you access the data, like even EDHREC's top 100 page is just mostly color fixing. But of course, there's a million lands that people play for color fixing. And, you know, some of those may have opportunities, some of them don't. But I, I want to see like the 100 through 200 most popular lands, uh, but that isn't displayed. So some of the utility and lands that people actually really do play a lot can be a little harder to find. Um, so I think that there's still a, a well in there. But having said that, here's two more that I, I like right now. One of them is Vault of the Archangel, foils out of Dark Ascension. They're about $9 right now, uh, pretty low supply. I think these are probably good up to $20 or so. Um, Dark Ascension's old. I mean, that's the original Innistrad. So we've already gone through one Innistrad, probably could see a second one in a couple of years. Uh, there's only one foil. I it had a reprint in like a dual deck, I think, and uh, not a dual deck or an event deck, maybe one other location, but there are no other foils. So it's, it's quite popular in EDH. Let me wait, let me get the number. Oh, 10 and a half thousand decks, 10 and a half thousand decks run it. Supply is pretty constrained. It's the only foil just seems like, uh, it won't take long for that to, to finish moving up the chain there. And so far it looks like we're getting a black, white tokens Z type theme probably in modern horizons. Yeah, we um, could with that new Sarah. Which would drive this further. So, I mean, low supply, single foil printing, more than five years old, slam dunk. Thank you. I, I don't think it's like, I think we can both agree it's not like going to take off next week. But your first, it's going to have a slow, steady drain. Six to 12 month hold is probably a lot. And you might get there sooner if Modern Horizons gives up the goods. Yep. All right. Um, so my next... No, hold on. I have to spend nine minutes talking about uh, <laughs> your Twitter. My discussion. no, my my thing. Oh, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. No, I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> All right. Um, so my next one is walking ballista foils. Uh, I know that we've talked. We probably talked about this when they rotated. Um, 
But the reality is this is one of the top played creatures in modern, top 50 modern card, no reprint in sight. Um, foils have been, are at like moderate supply, um, but draining steadily. And Tron is unlikely to get hit by Horizons, at least so far as we know. Maybe there's a couple of anti-Tron cards in there. Maybe not. We'll know more soon. Um, Non-foils might actually be the better play at 15 to say to get to 30, because I think that's going to happen more easily than the foils getting from 40 to 80. Um, but the foils are in significantly lower supply. So, And the ramp is already relatively pronounced. You've got Channel Fireball posting up a, a cell wall at 43 um, with 50 copies listed. We've seen a lot of that lately from Channel Fireball on TCG Player. Um, looks like they, they did some smart buying because on, on a lot of key cards, their inventory is looking pretty deep. Yeah, this is like the third or fourth time we've may, had to make note of that. Oh, and I'd say that in the Pro Trader Discord, people have flagged it like two or three dozen times in the last couple of weeks. Um, different cards, like the cell wall is, is Channel Fire. Um, and I didn't notice that six months ago. There was some other vendors, uh, mid-range vendors um, that are a little lesser known that tended to have like 10 or 12 copy cell walls, but I don't remember seeing 50 copy cell walls all that frequently. Um, So you got to chew through about a hundred copies here before you're going to see significant gains. Um, But because of that line in the sand, the modern horizons has, has drawn. um, I don't think this is a three month hold. It's probably a six to a 12, but so far we don't have any news on a set where walking ballista is likely to see a reprint. No. And I mean, yeah, I agree. And it might come eventually, you know, they're not going to stop printing these cards altogether. Um, But at the same time, you could have you've got at least until this fall, this winter, right? That was like uh, Ultimate Masters was December. So you've got at least several months before that's an issue. Um, But you, you know, that's no more likely than anything else, I guess. So it's the same amount of risk you take with any sort of foil. Walking Bliss is a is a powerful card. It's it's really good because any type of combo deck might be looking for it because if you can generate infinite mana, Walking Bliss is likely the best tool to kill your opponent with um, because you can just play it as a giant creature and shoot your opponents. But being a creature and an artifact, it's also easy to find. Um, it, it has interactions that are favorable both with, well, Court of Calling doesn't work, but um, like Duskwatch, Recruiter, and other effects allow you to go find it. Um, you can also do artifact stuff with it. So it's got some utility as a like one card, shoot your opponent down. Um, and I've, I've looked at this card multiple times over the months and when I'm looking for stuff to, to write about. And I, I never, I never write it down because the inventory is just a little too deep and the price is a little too high for me to really want it to bite it. Um, but I, I do think that it is still definitely a card worth keeping an eye on. And it's a four of in hardened scales, modular affinity builds, and they are still putting up top eight results in the land of Phoenix and Dredge. If Dredge and Phoenix take a hit from Faithless Looting and fall off tier one, then decks like hardened scales, Tron, Death Shadow all get more elbow room, um, which should mean that people that are switching off those other decks will be looking at some of those other mainstays, which could, you know, drive returns on these cards that are four ofs in the deck. Drive returns and make you. Save you money, money. playing our favorite playing game. the game. Magic, yeah. Magic-y the Gather Kings. Things. Magic-ing. All right. Um, my second card this week is Mana Confluence. Really hate having to say this out loud because I kind of crapped all over this card a long time ago, but <laughs> not willing to not willing to 
admit when I'm wrong. It's not, it's, not, it's not about being original or owning the idea. It's just about giving the best information possible. Yeah, I'm also going to edit this out of the cast. But foil Monica influences out of Theros are about 20 bucks. This is in 40,000 ETH decks, like 38,000 or something. Really low supply on this. Like, chances are, if you did not pay to listen to this podcast, you will not see any copies left at $20. Um, yep. Really low supply. And frankly, I probably wouldn't have written about it. I just would have bought them and picked another <laughs> card this week. But yeah. I'm saving my pennies for like to do that renovations is. on a new house. So I'm just tossing them out there for you guys at the moment. Uh, but really this seems like a slam dunk and I, you know, 40 bucks for four, you know, as like a possible benchmark, it does seem a little high to me. I gotta be honest with you. I don't know who wants to pay $40 for a foil Monica influence, but we know that the expeditions are 80. So someone's paying for them. So maybe not 40, but 35, but it's just played so often that it doesn't seem like it'll be that hard to get sellers. So you might not get a, a full double up on it, but I also can't imagine having trouble finding buyers. The core set gives me a little more pause on this one because this could easily be in a core set. Like it's had enough years, like four years ago or whatever, right? So it could it could be in the core set this year um, and it would make sense there. So I wouldn't want to be super deep. Like I think two, three, four foil copies and try to out them in the next three months and you're probably doing just fine. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree with you there. I'm not, I mean, well, first of all, you couldn't buy 30 of these if you wanted to. But yeah, I mean, it's always going to have that hanging over its head. Uh, but those are the types of cards that I don't know. People end up making a ton of money on those because you're like, oh, they can reprint it, they can reprint it, they can reprint it, and then six years later, and you're like, why haven't they reprinted this? And it's worth a million dollars. But all right, you got two yeah. more for us here. All right, so my final picks of the week uh, start with uh, another important modern card, Eidolon of the Great Revel. Um, uh, sorry, I don't have the great Revel. I would say, you, um, you always say Revel, right? And it's got to be yeah. Revel. It's got to be Revel. I, I, yeah, I always do that wrong the first time. Uh, this just sounds better. I don't know. Uh, anyway, M25 foils 10 to 20. Let's go with 100% call out. Point for the fences. It's top 25 modern creatures. Burn is always in the mix. On any given day, in any given modern top eight, no matter where the meta has shifted to, Burn has a shot. It has very infrequently been edged out of the entire format. Um, and it's been doing solidly in, in and amongst Is It and Dredge. People still run the deck constantly. Um, and because it got a printing in M25, it's not d- due for another reprint for, say, at least a year. might even be two or three years before we see that one again. It's going to be... Pl- the thing is, because of Modern Horizons, there is such a backlog now of cards that need reprints again for Modern that there are going to be cards that go three five seven years before they get their print um and this could well be one of them who knows um but i feel pretty confident that the foils are going to continue to drain out from the current position and i I see this one again like ballista not something i see as a short-term play necessarily though horizons or meta shifts might drive it um i see it more of a six to twelve month relatively easy breezy hold you don't have to think too hard about yeah i can't argue with that both of those seem very solid. Um, you're, you know, you're right on the modern rides is going to mess us up because we're losing that sort of slot where we normally get all those modern reprints. And instead we're adding a ton of cards. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So it really makes me wonder if maybe like, obviously a bunch of 
a bunch of stuff is going to get an extra year or two that it wouldn't have had otherwise, which is interesting. But it really makes me wonder what uh, where Modern Horizons is going to go because that seems like it's going to be a, a really rich vein because if they're trying to play catch up with a bunch of stuff after Modern Horizons, that means Modern Horizons itself won't get the reprints it might need like two years later. Uh, so it'll be fun to see how that goes. Yeah, and the thing is that like some of the buy lists between Cool Stuff Abu and CK are already higher than the lowest price copies on TCG Player. So you can get copies out there in the $10, $11, $12 range, and some of the buy lists are offering like $13, $14 in credit. Wow, that's pretty nice. So your play is backed, right? Like in the, <laughs> That's exactly the kind of situation where you just have to choose how deep. How deep. So deep. So deep. That's a shout out to my DDR plant fans. So deep. <laughs> All right. So my final pick of the week, uh, we talked uh, about the Ether Revolt non-foil planar bridges going from six to nine, 50% gains this week. Cards been featured on Command Zone and uh, several other uh, commander related content uh, creators have featured the card or or shown it on, on their streams, podcasts, etc. Um, so I think, and I wrote an article this weekend uh, about going back and looking at masterpiece inventions and provided a list of, I think six or seven that I thought were likely to hit a new tipping point this year. Um, that were either close to selling out and showing a really strong price ladder or where, um, there was a developing play pattern. And there was two that I realized after the fact I had missed. One of them was staff of domination. Um, an important card with Vanifar and any commander that wants to untap or make use of big mana. Um, and the other one was Planar Bridge itself, which has already seen movement because it was available as low as $25 or $30 at one point. And right now you can get them around $50 or $60. But I think it's going to get to 100 because the inventory is draining real low. And once the cat's out of the bag and people say, oh, yeah, that's like that is a worthwhile card to have. And it's not like commander specific. It's just big mana specific. So any commander deck that can reliably make use of the card has reason to throw it in there. And it's not even like Panharmonicon where you need specific kinds of triggers. In this case, you just need to have big permanence of some point, like game-changing, game-winning permanence that you want to go pull out of your deck. That's pretty open-ended synergy. Um, and I see no reason to not believe that $60, $50 copies of Planar Bridge, depending on whether you're getting them in North America or overseas, are going to get to $100 plus. Yeah, that's definitely a... Any masterpiece under $100 has room to grow, right? Like there, those are all tempting. Those are all appealing. You have to think about them, but there's room there for them. And a card that's getting some traction in the moderns in the EDH scene recently um, has a big effect. The type of effect that people are just going to, you know, kind of come back to over and over again because it does something big and flashy and powerful. Uh, yeah, I mean, it might not get there tomorrow, but I do like the inevitable outcome here. And, you know, you're not dealing with any reprints, right? Yeah, and the reality is that the the singular nature of the EDH masterpieces, the fact that you only need a you buy a single copy, not a playset, we called out many times on this cast, and it really has made all the difference. They have sold better for ages than say Expedition Scalding Turn, because if you want an Expedition Scalding Turn, you probably want four of them, and that's like a thousand to twelve hundred dollars, whereas the masterpiece Soul Ring is still about three hundred dollars. So significantly closer to the kind of impulse purchase you can make on a payday Friday than throwing $1,200 at a play set of Scalding Turns that may warp and then be unplayable in your modern or legacy deck. Right. So 
that has made a difference. And inventions have sold better overall than invocations. The second time that inventions were targeted and started spiking, everybody went, the invocations were out and everybody went after those too and did some dip, double, triple dipping into expeditions. But the reality is that there's no question in my mind it goes inventions, expeditions. Well, actually, inventions, box toppers, slash expeditions are probably about equal. And then invocations are clearly at the bottom of the heap in terms of overall player demand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. And expeditions have slowly been gaining ground. I think one of them was more expensive finally. It took a while to get there. Uh, so they do move, but um, inventions are definitely the, the juicy one. Well, like I've got a pile of expedition foil blunt Steinmeyers that I bought last April for 105. Yep. And you can out them in the like the 150 ish range. So, like the returns are solid. Um, but I could sell a soul ring a day, I bet you, or pretty close to it. Yeah, I actually just I have a couple of them and I actually just listed one. Uh, I, I lowered my price a little bit and it sold within 24 hours of me listing it yep. at I'll, like I'll, 300 or whatever. The, the only one I, I had like 30 plus at, total go through my hands, mostly from Europe. Um, that we sourced as low as $72 or whatever. The I only have my personal play sets left and told one of my shipping partners in the UK that had sent me some of his stuff that like I was going to like dive in on selling his masterpieces more aggressively because they've been sitting around for a little bit and there's no reason for it. Like he's got some soul rings he wants to unload that he got really low too. Um, and I'm willing to bet I slap those up for like 280, 290. They'll go right away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. But uh, don't do that because I sold mine and sold mine. So you have to wait. I'm not even sure that like I think there's just room in the market. Like most EDH players that of means people that are, are established and comfortable have a comfortable budget for their gaming um, want to own that card. So they're they're going to at some yeah, point. Yeah, but I don't want to sell them for 300. I want to sell them for 450. <laughs> in, in which case you just have to wait right and the question is whether you could flip that money multiple times in the interim like for instance i have a foil judge foil gaius cradle that i traded in pretty much even uh from ck last month so call it a thousand dollar card and i'm seriously considering just outing at like nine or 950 this week because there's so much opportunity right now that I am just continuously as well. I'm, I'm selling more per month than I ever have. And I'm still running out of funds reinvesting. So I'm looking at those cards like dual lands, like, you know, judge promo Gaia's cradle, like a lot of it, like bizarre Baghdad, like Misha's workshop, any of this stuff that I think is going to has a decent chance to put up like 10 to 25% a year from here on out um, with the occasional big spike. But is very unlikely to beat the like 50 to 90% that we've been seeing on stuff lately, like Mox Ambers, where you're in at like $6 and out at 18 or the foils you're in at 12 and out at 40. Like there's no comparison. And so I'm really like, I've been putting together a pile of that stuff that I had retreated to that I think it's now time to cash in those chips and make active again. Oh, I really should dig out all of that crap and try and start selling it. Cause I'm in the same boat as I've got a good chunk of stuff saved up and I'm piecemealing it out here and there. But, uh, you know, like the soul rings is like, yeah, I could try and hold out for 400 or I could just sell them at 300 and then move the money around and do more with it. I mean, it's not like I don't have other funds that I could do it with, but like got to pay for real life stuff occasionally. Yep. 
All right, so let's just quickly go through some metagame we can review. Um, Star City Games ran probably the most important tournament uh, in North America in the weekend. It was a team open, so they were playing Standard, Modern, and Legacy in three-person teams. Um, in the Modern segment of that, it was Urzatron, Is It Phoenix, Lanternless, uh, Amulet Titan, Amulet Titan, Dredge, Hate Bear, and Urzatron. Interesting that also in the classic that they ran, which only had 240 players, so take it with a grain of salt, but it had double Is It Phoenix, Burn, Blue-White Control, Hardened Affinity, and then two Hate Bear decks. And these Hate Bear decks were the ones that are running um, Eldrazi Displacer, Leonin Arbiter, Reality Smasher, Simeon Spirit Guide, Thalia Guardian of Thraben, um, Dahlia, Heretic, Cathar, Thought Not Seer, Declaration Stone, Dismember, Chalice of the Void, and Smuggler's Copter. So this is pretty similar to the deck I've got built for Modern right now. Um, black, White, Hate Bears, if you want to call it that, I call it Black, White, Eldrazi. Um, interesting that Declaration and Stone is a two-of slot in there. Uh, another nod to needing to exile creatures instead of kill them or destroy them. Um, useful against both Dredge and Phoenix. Um, and also uh, part of the rise of Chalice of the Void decks, right? We've been talking about this card. Uh, the more that decks like Phoenix want to cast uh, single casting cost spells multiple times per turn, the better Chalice on one looks. Oh, yeah. That card just is never bad, and it just seems to be getting better and better. That card is so good in so many places. Yeah. Um on the legacy side of the team open, it was Loam, Death and Taxes, Blue Red Delver, Lands, Dark Depths, Death and Taxes, Miracles, Blue Red Delver. Who cares? In standard, it was two Red Deck Wins, Celestia Tokens, Gruel Aggro, Esper Control, White Weenie, White Weenie, Teamer Recl- Reclamation. So nothing too exciting there. Um, the other big tournament was Grand Prix Wait, Kyoto, which was a standard tournament. I want to share a thought here. I don't know if you caught it, but somebody um, in the modern and the modern team event had put uh, the new tech as Thopter Sword into the prison were prison decks because they play in Staring Bridge, right? So nobody can attack. But you draw for your turn, go up to one card, swing with an army of Thopters, play the card you drew. So you're able to generate that army of small dudes that both play early <laughs> defense, gain you some life, and also can still attack later on in the game by just timing your playing of the card type of thing. So um, Doctor Sword has been legal and was banned in Modern for the longest time. They just made it legal. Oh, I shouldn't say just made it legal. It's probably been over a year now. Uh, didn't really go anywhere, which is a little surprising, but it's a very potent combo. And I don't have any of the inventory numbers up in front of me, but that's the type of thing that could disappear real quick because there's such a precedent for the strength of those effects uh, of that particular combo. So if that gains any ground at all, I wouldn't be surprised to see some real quick movement on that. I feel like I have some foil sword of the makes waiting around from when that combo got unbanned and did nothing. I think I picked up like a place out of Japanese foils and I was giddy and then didn't do anything and I was so annoyed. However, there's lots of other cards in the Lanternless deck that have already made us money and are going to make us money. Um, Mox Opals, War of Invention, Collective Playing Brutality. our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Teleria West Foils, sold a bunch of those this week. Um, yeah, you still had Teleria West Foils? Yeah, I, when I was standing beside you, I was <laughs> buying Teleria West Foils in Toronto and then picked up a few more in Cleveland. Uh, I got one at like 14 that was like the, the most mint foil. Like it was gradable. It was a gradable Teleria West. Um, on the floor at Cleveland. I don't think I would grade a Teleria West. No, I'm just saying, like, future site foils are often, often display some amount of wear, um, especially ones that weren't obviously good at the time. 
Uh, so yeah, that's the meta game we can review. Um, nothing too exciting. Uh, I think everybody is kind of like holding their breath. The Invitational is going to be interesting this week. The, the biggest cash prize purse of a Magic tournament ever, as I understand it, with an extremely small field. I can't remember if it's 26 or some other number, but it's tens of people, not hundreds or thousands. Um, and it's a mix of your favorite uh, newly recruited Magic pros that are making 75000 a year, plus their various perks um, via their contracts in the Magic Players League, as well as a bunch of streamer streamers and Magic personalities. Um, I think Saffron Olive's in there. I think Cedric Phillips is in there. Uh, MTG Gamer Girl or Nerd Girl, whatever her name is. LSV and Gabby are in there. It's going to be a lot of fun. I am a little worried that the less experienced players are going to get blown the hell out by the superstars, but I wish them all the best. Yeah, uh, you. It's almost a mixed blessing because it's like it's awesome that they go in, get to go in there and make you know make all that money and do that well for themselves. But at the same time, everyone's going to watch them crash and burn against Hall of Fame players. Uh, so it's kind of a, it's like, are you willing to sell some of your ego, essentially? Yeah. Uh, but you know it's probably worth it i will say that a lot of the marketing and build-up that i've seen the last couple weeks around this has been impressive the website that they built for it looked really great the promo videos they did looked great uh the photos they did of the participants were really good um they are headed in the right direction and you can see the influence of the people that they hired that came from the esports um arena (laughs) to bring that expertise over into magic and to reshape the way that the game is presented and um, discussed. They also put together a really, uh, I I thought, strong content team that where Kibler is on the desk, like, and he's been doing a lot of work with Hearthstone over the last few years. So bringing him over is, I think, an important coup in some ways. Like this is a magic hall of famer who had stepped away from the game and, He's back at the, you know, as the face of their biggest tournament, which helps bring some people that maybe have always played Hearthstone but never played Magic and get them interested in watching what he's up to that day. Or have um, dabbled in Magic and are, sure. you know, open to getting into it with uh, with Arena. Yeah. And there's some people like international people and people from other esports and people from uh, Geek and Sundry that are part of that team. And it's just a whole a whole bunch of fresh faces uh and known personalities but like a completely different composite so for i think from a nostalgic perspective it's a little sad because some of the people that we're used to seeing at major coverage events for magic aren't in the booth but um this is a good experiment like i think this is going to be interesting to see how it plays out i suspect that there is going to be uh a strong performance by that crew well the big get with kibler is that um he has spent over a year doing esports commentary. Like that's what he's been pretty much what he does, uh, which, but he's been doing it on a stage and a scale that no one in magic has been. Um, so now he's bringing a lot of experience from the seat, you know, that type of seat into the arena where uh, it, just, it hasn't existed in magic before. So I think that's probably going to be useful too. I'm sure he, he's got some insight into the process and what will make a strong stream. Um, that might not quite be there with some of the other magic personalities. I, you know, it's very easy to get comfortable with your market size and 
what you prepare for those people without worrying about the big stage. You and I are very comfortable doing this cast for the number of people that listen to it, but uh, be another story if we suddenly had to do it for a hundred times as many people. Fair. So, I mean, day nine's also there stage host, uh, Brian Kibler, desk host, as we said, Paul Chion's doing an uh, analysis, David Williams, um, former pro player. And he also has pull in the poker community uh, being a world poker champion. I can't remember exactly what the tournament was because I'm definitely not a poker guy. Um, and he was also on Top Chef or something at one point, right? Yep. Yeah. Talented and then, gentleman. Uh, Alias V, Marshall Sutcliffe, and Becca Scott. Becca Scott being from uh, Geek and Sundry. So that's pretty crack team of experienced uh, pr- presentation gaming professionals. Uh, I think it's going to be a good deal. They're they're certainly making a push with this, right? Like they're putting all their putting a lot of chips in one basket. Um, hopefully it goes well. It's gonna be really funny if it's plagued with the same tech problems they always seem to run into, and the microphones don't work for two rounds. I sure hope not. Now, in terms of financial in uh, impact, more or less nothing. I mean, if somebody comes up with a very innovative use of a card in a deck that we haven't seen before, it's possible that something could move, but I wouldn't hold your breath. I think the tournament to be looking to for that is going to be Pro Tour London, where we get the new mulligan rule and we get to see how things like Serum serum Powder and Gemstone Caverns and uh, Ley Lines and so forth play out in a modern where you get to mulligan into your best hand. So this is modern, but but the London mulligan rule is not in effect, correct? In London? Uh, Well, no, no, this, the Mythic Championship. No, the Mythic Invitational. Mythic Invitational will not be using the new Mulligan rule. No, right? No, no, okay, no. yeah, yeah. So I and they're and they're playing and they're playing that that a weird best of one format with standard, right? Oh, like right. they're doing, yeah, they're doing the thing where you bring three decks or something, and you you either randomly select the first one or you pick the first one, and then the you get to switch between them. Whatever, but you only ever play one round. Like it's just it's a super weird promo st- style format that has no bearing on reality yeah. okay so i agree with you 100 percent. there's just nothing nothing here of note for for us essentially in terms of what it's going to do to card prices it will be interesting to see how much viewership it gets as you know as a non-traditional tournament with a massive cash purse and a bunch of personalities pulled in to lure viewers in, in its direction so that's worth watching in terms of health of the game and are they moving in the right direction i'm gonna go out on a limb here I don't think they get more than 15% more than their peak ever. Like they're, I don't, I don't think that really does all that better than most magic events do. I just think that there's, so I think that there's a, a reasonably hard limit to how popular magic can be to watch. We'll find out, but I don't, I don't yeah. think it'll be the number one Twitch stream at any point in the weekend. The other thing is, there's an article that we've been talking to one of our members about um, writing up for us because it has been observed that Wizards is making use of this thing that other gaming companies have made use of where you can basically embed your Twitch stream in other platforms where it kind of like runs in an ad slot. Oh, that thing. So in situations where people are browsing websites passively and are not necessarily looking to watch the Magic Mythic Invitational that they may be counting those people as viewers. And that's been going on for a while. 
So some of the viewership spikes we've seen recently are ki- are in my mind at least called into question until I see some hard math on some of that. Um, so we're hoping we can like pull an article together to explore that further and maybe try to get some commentary from Wizards at some point this spring. Uh, yeah, that would be, I mean, they might be doing that, in which case they get to broadcast or, or claim that they have all these views, but that's kind of... I mean, dishonest, really. Like, it doesn't, I don't know who they're lying to, but like, it does seem like they're cheating. Well, it lets them brag about viewership numbers that are higher than before. So, the question then is in terms of active viewership, how are things changing or not? Yeah. So, I mean, we might not actually know the answer to the question, but I do think that this actually does not get that many more viewers than they're used to. Well, let's see how it goes. Um, So, let's see. Segment four, we got a couple to choose from. We got. Uh, wait, this guy wants to know about having capital and cash flow available. I'm battling with a pile, 2000 card pile of specs that I haven't put away. Which one tickles your fancy tonight? Yeah, I like that. So that was a, that was a, which one, not both. Uh, the second one, the one about consolidation, because that's one of my favorite topics. So consolidation is the principal Uh, in MTG Finance, where if you have more cards than time, then you are probably supposed to be consolidating, which means instead of trying to get top dollar retail for all of your specs, you put together, you spend an afternoon putting together a big buy list order, and you turn that pile of maybe not 2,000 cards, but maybe it is, um, dozens, hundreds, or maybe even thousands of cards into a much smaller number of cards. So take a whole bunch of dollar, five dollar, ten dollar, twenty dollar cards and a few, you know, masterpieces that you've done well on or whatever, and turn that into a bunch of Gaia's cradles or a MP unlimited mox jet or something. Um, trading into cool stuff or Abu or CK or Channel Fireball or whoever. Um, whoever has the target priced uh, attractively enough to justify what you're going to send into their buy list. Um, face-to-face games this week is running a 40% buy list bonus. So that might be worth a look, um, in that kind of situation as well. And the reverse of consolidation is what I was talking about earlier is that later when you feel like you're running short on cash, just because you're plowing it back into specs and you've got more specs and you've got cash, um, which is not always going to be the case. You might want to consider then taking some of those goodies that you picked up the 300, $500,000, $2,000 cards and trading them back out um, for cash, price yourself 10 or 15% below the market so that you can go hunting 30, 40, 50% gains. Um, and if you manage to connect all those dots correctly, you're going to come out way ahead of the game. And then if the card that you traded out of, like I was talking about Judge Foil Gaius Cradle, which I would like to own long term, but I don't need to be holding all the time. I don't play it. I don't have it in any deck or anything. Um you know, you could go back and buy it back again. And it might have gone up to like 1200 by the time you get back in on it. But you're buying that with 1600 worth of purchasing power because you, you know, you you exit on the cradle, you went to 900, you used the 900 to buy $900 worth of stuff. It turned into 1600 within six months. And then you go back and get the cradle and you're up 400. Uh, yeah, in general, I think that's a good idea. I think that that I think that that uh, sounds great in theory. It is difficult, I think, to do that, not only because of the effort involved, but because of how how many tempting choices there are along the way, right? Like just today, we talked about Street Race and Vault of the Archangels and some Monica influences, and that was just this week. And I mean, if you do 
one of those cards every other week. So a very minimal buying pattern. You're still generating a good deal of inventory and a lot of smaller stuff. And I mean, you yourself said you did well with Mox Opals or uh, Mox Ambers, which were like a $6 buy-in, and that's not something you own one or two of. So, I, I mean, I completely agree with you that cutting down on your inventory like that is going to be good for your time investment and how much effort you have to spend thinking about this stuff. But it is difficult to walk away from a lot of these cards. Well, like I posted, we have a, one of the channels in our Discord is people just reporting their sales. So other people can see is selling well that they might also be able to get in on and, um, you know, humble brags and whatever. So in there while I was on vacation, because it was kind of, you know, busy doing other things, but sold a bunch of stuff passively, like we talked about last week while I was on vacation. And when I tallied it and put the chunk of the spreadsheet from that period, um, in, which was like numbers, I think the average return of this month hold was over 100%. It's like 120. So annualizing, and you're not on average going to get that, but if you're hitting half that, even third, you're probably most of your in your daily life, appreciating your having where you're probably appreciating faster than your stock roll. You may, um, or like, as my argument has long been that stocks are subject to so many more than match, especially if you really know your shit. Um, so, you know, people, people have decisions and it's not always the right answer because say <laughs> when I traded out, for instance, my biggest fail ever, when I traded, uh, out of my unlimited Lotus with about 4,000 for about that much in crypto, and then it tripled and then I didn't sell. And then I got hosed because Lotus went to 10,000 and crypto dropped by like 60%. That's not a period where you need to be doing that, but that's then is not now. Now is a different period that most of those staples that were driven partially crypto, partially by reserveless targeting, are taking a breather. 2019 is probably the year where reserveless takes some time off and only appreciates um, marginally outside of the very, very highest end. We've actually seen some very big numbers posted for graded cards this year, but that's a different different topic entirely. I think um, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be I wouldn't be looking to trade out of a like graded nine beta black lotus to go after Mox Ambers. What I'm getting at is the highest end of the market definitely showed fantastic growth this year. The stuff like a Tundra or a Gaia's Cradle is probably not going to outpace what you can do with modern and EDH cards this year. Which is a fair point. I mean, that's all a fair point that you're you're not going to sell a $9,000 Lotus to go buy $100 worth of Mox Opal. So then I get that. And ultimately, I, I do like the idea of, of pairing some of this down as I stare across my deck, my desk and I've got several hundred cards here all of which have real value attached to them it's still a ton of work to keep them on top of all this um and it is it is frustrating it almost you know when i stop and think about it, i'm like maybe putting leaving 15 percent on the table and not going after everything is worth the amount of like I'm okay with that because the amount of overhead I save myself is worth it. Even if it doesn't time shipping. Yeah. Everything. And like, even if, you know, it's ultimately worth it to do that type of stuff because it, it is really, I can't say that it's not. Uh, and it's not even like I'm necessarily doing something more valuable with my time. It's just, it's just annoying. And like, that might be enough of a reason. Yeah. Everybody, everybody's got their limits. I got to um, tell you, I got to tell you, no joy is being sparked right now. <laughs> yeah we have a two-year-old so there's not a whole lot of joy in our living room either in terms of how it's laid out <laughs> she just puts it where she wants to put it mm, you, can, you, can cool. pick, you, you can pick it up and put it back where you want it but it won't be there tomorrow that sounds miserable 
I don't know how they do it when you have like triplets or quadruplets, but that's a whole different topic. I think you bottom line, the, the too long didn't read on consolidation is if you've got more time than you have cards, you should probably be selling at retail. If you've got more cards than you have time, you should probably be buy listing, consolidating into something and then looking for your next move. And if you've got more time than cards, get a job. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you get the like, how do I get started question? And that the answer there is almost never if you want to do mtg finance but you don't have any money the first thing you're (laughs) supposed to do is go get money yeah (laughs) you're not it's super unwise to try to turn like a 25 cent card into a 35 cent card and then 35 into 47 and and so on and so forth no 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 no. i'm I'm going to assume in that scenario you are underemployed (laughs) so you first need to go get skills and a job to whatever your situation and ability allows you to Build up your, you know, make sure you can cover your essentials. And then once you've got some disposable income, then you can start making choices about whether that's saving for a house or it's investing in your stock portfolio and getting your retirement savings rolling. Or if, you know, you think that your best returns are going to be in MTG finance and you feel like you're competent enough to pull it off, then you can start working on that project. But almost none of us that are busy in the MTG finance community, whether it's people that work for vendors or buyers or guys who own big vendors, um, run booths at GPs, the Montes of the world, you know, everybody got into this because they started with some money. Either they had a job and they made a little money or they had a career that had been built up over a bunch of time and they had enough money that they had you know, steady disposable income or they were born in the money. I mean, most of the kinds of people we just talked about are in one of those three categories. Yeah, I'm going to let um, you figure out which one it is. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Depending on which person you're talking about. Any of them. The, yeah, and I mean, so you can't get from point A to point B. That's part of why capitalist societies are, are definitely not fair is because you have to have money to make money. That truism is as true now as it ever has been. And you're, you have to open up an opportunity for yourself before you can then turn your attention to, you know, fooling around with finance in some hobby that you love. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And that is a that that is information that will only be heard by those who least need it. <laughs> it's not true. We, there, there are teenagers that have have registered with their parents credit cards for MGG Price Pro Trader. There are plenty of university and college students that are don't have super deep pockets but find the whole con- whole premise interesting. I mean, I I fooled around like I didn't call it MGG finance at the time. I just bought and sold some cards when I was in university. Um I made a little money here and there. It just wasn't like hadn't coalesced into the thing it is today back then. Well, yeah, I think that term itself is like I don't know. Less than 10 years old. Yeah, I mean it it, it does it predate us doing this cast? I think it oh, yeah. does. But I don't know yeah, if it, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I honestly I don't know if it predates me writing for MTG Price. That term it's like, got it's like, coined later, I think. Maybe well, not. like MTG Price, Quiet Speculation, Brainstorm Brewery, all starts in and around the same two year period, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just and, I don't know if the term was used. You have, uh, yeah, like John writing articles years ago. There was all sorts of back pack grinder forum mm-hmm. posts along the way you got chaz at star city and then bsb and qs and mtg price etc etc and many, all the indexing sites how many anyway f- mtg salvation posts were there from people doing p- 
pack the power. Oh my god. Oh. Okay, I've got I've got an idea for uh, the event. The next time Jason's on the cast, let's have Jason do a drunk history of MTG Finance. <laughs> wait, wait, say that. Who, who, who were the two people? Yeah, we'll have Jason on. Long beloved uh, peer and staff writer at MTG Price, um, and he will do a drunk history of MTG Finance. Okay, I looked over and read a tweet as you said it, and I wasn't prepared for the information. Was it? Is it just him that gets drunk and does finances, or do we all have to do it? We all drink. Now, see, that should be like an in-person thing. We'll do it like this. We all send each other some alcohol. Or in my case, because I'm over a border, you can recommend some, and I'll go buy it. <laughs> oh, there's the Rob. You can't buy it in Canada. Uh, it's got to be something you guys like that I can buy up here. Um, and you and Jason will swap and then we'll do drunk history of MTG finance. Once we convince them that we're doing this, that's not going to work because it's going to take like half a drink before we like start talking about specific people. And at that point we can't put it on the air. (laughs) We'll do our first after hours. Uh, yeah, I I mean, it doesn't matter what you call it. You still can't put it on the air because there's, (laughs) I'm totally fine with Jason. Just like, ripping us all a new one like indiscriminately firing at targets for an hour uh, it's not him that i'm worried about there's a reason these conversations happen at the bars of the hotels at 2 a.m after a gp and not on podcast <laughs> well we'll let the listeners vote on it you guys can put your thoughts in the mtg finance podcast discord channel <laughs> you can <laughs> you can and that's a wrap for this week folks where can uh, people find you, James? You guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. And uh, I'm Travis Allen. Yeah, uh, Wizard Bump and BUMPIN on Twitter, right every Monday Watchtower. <laughs> hey, are you going the Ni- are you going to the GP Niagara Falls? When when is that? Uh wait, it's like in a week or two, three weeks? Somewhere in Probably April. Probably somewhere not. in April. Wait, okay, my calendar's loading. It is I tend to be on Alara Baby Duty. Weekend mornings. And it is the weekend of the twentieth. The weekend of the twentieth. It's a little tempting. I feel like there's going to be deals there. Could be. It's only it's only an hour and a half. Yeah, I mean, I've driven up to Toronto like seven times. You can't come down Niagara Falls once. It's true. Maybe I'll bring Laura. Let her just browse the binders. See how see how she's a pretty clever little kid. She'll probably figure it out. I also want to uh, let people know. Sorry, go ahead. You have a, you want to finish your thought? No, go ahead. I want to let people know that I will go out to dinner with you at Niagara Falls for the low price of $3,000. Oh. Uh, yeah, I thought I'd offer that service up. I need new appliances. So I'm going to toss that out there. And But if you want me to bring picks of the week, you have to pay extra. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> people are going to it's going to be bruised and bloody when they fight over that. <laughs> Do you want to remind right. our listeners of anything? I would like also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Uh, rumor has it that if you pay that money, you also get access to the Discord. Yeah. And the Discord is pretty sweet. We just pulled together a bunch of testimonials from people that are in there using it. Let's just say they're happy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think, I really think we should get a cut of the profits that they make. Like, that seems fair. Like, two, <laughs> like 1%, 1%, well, 1% per person, right? Here's what we do. Um, transparent spreadsheets uh, where we can see how people spend their money. 
we help them and then we take a cut and then the SEC comes and arrests us and it's a whole big roller coaster. I've never been arrested before. It seems like getting arrested by the SEC is if you're going to get arrested, like one of the least fun ways to do it. I mean, like you, yeah. you want if you want to if you're getting arrested, it needs to be a good story. I don't even know if they do the arresting. Do they like call the FBI and the FBI arrest you? Probably. I mean, the SEC, I'm sure, has no legal right to arrest people. They must defer to like the FBI who would then do the arresting. Yeah. I mean, I'm in Canada, so I'm just going to say no I mean, like, when they ask for an interview. I mean, getting arrested by the FBI is cool, though. Like, you really <laughs> messed around if the FBI is coming for you. That's tempting. Mm-hmm. I would do that. Anyway. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Also, unlike you and Cliff, I did not forget to pick a winner of the $25 gift certificate from Cool Stuff, Inc., Noix11. N-O-I-X-11 in the chat room, uh, in the Discord server, when we were looking for a name, you are the winner this week. I, Good on you. All right. you didn't, I didn't forget nothing. You Twittered off to Hawaii and left no information or instructions about how to do any of this. So I'm like, well, recording, but I have no idea like how to give people credit. So eh, we'll do two one week. That's pretty weak. I, I already, I already, I already gave the credit away to the person you guys missed. Yeah. I'm on top. Well, I'm glad they made it. This that brings us to the end of this week's episode of MTG Fast Finance. I've really enjoyed our discussion today, James. Uh, thanks, Travis. Uh, I had a great time as well, and we will see all of you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. <laughs> Thank you.